If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we're in chapter 19 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 25. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 582. Isaiah 19, 16 through 25. And we're in this section of Isaiah where the Lord is pronouncing judgment, judgment against all the nations. And this section is repetitive. It all sounds the same. It seems like the judgments are all the same. You just change the name of the nation, but it could be the same chapter. And this makes sense, really, that the judgment's all the same, because the sin is all the same. The nations, really all the people, rebel against God. And this rebellion is judged, and this rebellion will be punished. And today we're looking at the judgment against Egypt. Now, Egypt at the time was one of the superpowers. Along with Assyria, Egypt was the, was the big dog on the block. The, the other nations looked, that we've looked at so far, Syria, Israel, Moab, Cush, these, these were all, even Babylon, these were all minor players at the time. But Egypt, Egypt and Assyria, they were the superpowers. These were the nations whom God's people were tempted to, to run to for protection. These were the nations that the, this was, that the other nations feared. So, so to set the context for our reading, the first 15 verses of this chapter detail the judgment that the Lord is going to deliver on the superpower, on Egypt. And like the judgment on the other nations, this judgment will be decisive, it will be overwhelming. And I'm not going to read through it because we've already looked at it. We've looked at it many times before. But we're going to look at it verses 15 through 25. In these verses, we see something different. In 16 through 25, we see in these verses, we see God as he's speaking about Egypt, specifically about Egypt, but in these verses, we see a template, a template, a pattern for the way the Lord deals with all people, both those who are near to him and those who are far away. We see a pattern for how the Lord draws unbelievers to himself. We basically see a a template for the Lord's plan for redemption. And we can think of Egypt here as as not just the nation of Egypt, which, which it is, but we can think of it much bigger than Egypt. Egypt here represents all the people that do not know the Lord, all the people that need to hear the gospel. And here we see the interaction between those who know God, those who are in covenant with God, and those who do not yet know him. But God is drawing them to himself. And this passage, I think, is is very exciting because we see God's grace at play. We see God drawing a people, people who are in full rebellion against him, how he draws them to himself. So Isaiah chapter 19, verses 16 through 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of a land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its borders. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. 
and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the scripture. We thank you for your word. Father, I do pray for your spirit to be with us this morning, to open our eyes to the amazing truths contained in your word. Father, I pray that you give me your spirit, you anoint my words, that I can communicate these truths accurately, and that you will be seen, and you will be praised, and you alone will get all the glory. We lift it up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are some people who are appalled, appalled at the descriptions of judgment that we see in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in places in the New Testament like Revelation. Much of what we have read in the last couple of weeks in Isaiah Much of what is seen in historical books, such as Joshua and and Judges, where God's people are commanded to attack cities and kill everyone. Women, children, men, animals, kill everyone. Or in the Psalms, where, where they speak of dashing babies against rocks. Or perhaps most troubling is, is this, uh, is this well-known story, which we actually sometimes think of as a children's story of Noah's Ark. But if you think about that, God had killed every single person, every single land animal, other than those that were on the ark. And people see this judgment in these accounts, they seem as primitive, they seem as barbaric, they even see him as blasphemous against their understanding of a, of a God of love. And they'll often attempt to, to separate the Jesus from the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament was, was angry, was temperamental, but Jesus is a, is a God of love. And sometimes they'll even try to separate Jesus from Paul. They, keep, they, they want to keep meek and mild Jesus, but they want to jettison the judgmental Paul, jettison the, the violence of the Old Testament. But as we just heard in our gospel reading a few moments ago, Jesus does not give us this option. Jesus' own words from the Sermon on the Mount confirm the Old Testament, confirm the law. Jesus says that he did not come to do away with the law, but he came to fulfill the law. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one dot, not one letter, not one of the least part of the letter will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, we don't like judgment. It makes us uncomfortable. In fact, we we react angrily, even even at the, the mention of judgment or even at reading of scripture that implied judgment. And our natural reaction is to dismiss it. Our natural reaction is to close our eyes to it, uh, to explain it away as as the words of some ancient primitive people having absolutely no application for us today. And there are two dangers to this approach. The first danger is dismissing this warning in Scripture. We ourselves are then in jeopardy of experiencing the very judgments that are described. That's the first danger. But the second danger, and the one we're going to focus on today when we dismiss these accounts of God's judgment, is that we fail to be amazed. We fail to be amazed by God's grace and his mercy shown towards those deserving only judgment. See, until we understand how far we fall from meeting God's righteous requirements, we'll never truly appreciate the grace and the the mercy that we're given. 
And this naturally will lead us to, to, to increased love and joy when we see this, when we experience this mercy that we're given. And it will just lead us naturally to increased joy for our gracious God and Savior. And when we quickly dismiss judgment, we also fail to see how God uses even temporal judgments to bring about eternal re- reconciliation, to bring about joy to those who are formerly rebelling against God. And this is, this is the amazing picture that we see today. This is the amazing picture that we have in today's reading. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage and we're going to see how God takes a, a people who are, are far away from him, people who persecute his children, who blaspheme his name, people who are foolish and faithless and heartless, and we're going to see how God brings them to himself, how he changes their heart, how he takes them from being on the outside and brings them to the inside. And this is the very thing that happened to each one of us, each one of us who are now in Christ. We're also going to see the role that God has for each of us as believers in this process, this process of drawing the lost to himself, the privilege we have, the privilege we have to participate with God in the gift of imparting new life to those who were once dead. My friends, there is no higher calling. There is no greater impact that we can have. It's an eternal impact that we have the privilege of participating with. So the first thing we see in this process, the pro- this process that God uses to draw the lost to himself, is it starts with fear. And we see this in verses 16 and 17. It starts off, it says, in that day. In that day. Well, what is that day? Well, this day is the day of judgment. It's the day that was spoke of, uh, spoken of in the first 15 verses of the chapter. It's a terrible, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overwhelming calamity. But this could also be the day of grace. Depending on the response of God's people, this could be a day of grace. So what is the reaction of the Egyptians? What is the reaction of those who, at this point, do not know God in that day? Well, continuing in verse 16, it says, The Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear, before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. So this verse is, is not insulting women. What this is saying is women, they were not warriors. The men were the warriors. The men were the, the physically stronger than the women. But it's saying in that day, the strength of even the, the strongest warriors will be like that of little girls. They will be utterly overwhelmed. And it says that they will tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. So what is the, the source of this fear. Well, the source of this fear is the Lord. He is the one who is their fear. And what he's done is he's gotten their attention. They realize here that they're helpless before this judgment. They realize that they are undone by the calamity he has brought upon them. Continuing in verse 17, it says, and the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. So remember, Egypt here is the superpower. Judah is, is a very minor nation from a human perspective. But the Lord is with the nation of Judah. And this terrifies the Egyptians. Continuing in verse 17, it says, everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. See, this fear is not random. It's not sadistic on the part of God. There is a purpose to the fear that they are experiencing. And God is using this fear for his own glory. But he's also using it for the good of his enemies. Good for Egypt. Good for those who oppose him. Good for those who oppose his holy people. And the purpose is to get their attention. The purpose is to make the Egyptians 
despair of their own power, despair of their own ability to save themselves. The purpose is to open their eyes to reality, for them to, to see that they are, they are not as secure as they think they are. The purpose is for them to just to see just how precarious their situation is. Some of you may have heard of Jonathan Edwards, well-known 18th century preacher. And you probably heard of his, his most famous, or some may say his most infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Any of you ever heard of that sermon? Yeah, a bunch of you have heard of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in this sermon, Edwards uses some amazing word pictures to give us a very graphic description of just how vulnerable the unbeliever is, just how close the unbeliever is to the horrors of eternal judgment in hell. So he may think he's safe, he may think he's secure, but Edwards exposes this delusion. See, Edwards compares the, the, the unbeliever to an insect dangling from this little tiny thread over a fire, and the fire is singeing the thread, and at any moment the insect can, can fall and to be burned. He uses the, the imagery of, of walking over a bridge with rotten boards, and at any moment the, the bridge can collapse without warning, plunging the unbeliever into eternal and unceasing torment. This is to try to get people to realize just how precarious we are when we think we are stable, we think we are secure. Well, God here is using this terror that the Egyptians feel, that the, that the unbelievers feel, he's using it for a purpose. And that purpose is to get their attention. That purpose is to awaken them of the dangerous and precarious position that they are in. And also to motivate them. To motivate them to desperately seek a way of escape. But there is only one way of escape. There's not multiple ways. And this way of escape is not something that they can figure out on their own. It's not something that they'll, they'll just stumble upon. It's, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of logical processing effects. The answer must be given to them. It must be revealed to them. See, the answer comes from God. It comes from God's revelation. And it must be given to them by those who know God, those who have God's divine revelation. And this brings us to the second phase in this process. God brings his people to the unbelievers. God brings his people here to the Egyptians. And we see this in verse 18. It says, in that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan, that is the Hebrew language, and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. See, God will bring those who speak the language of Canaan, that speak the Hebrew language, that is the, the language of God's revelation, at least up to that point. Now it's also in Greek. God will bring his people that know him, that know this revelation, people that have his word. And the people who have sworn an allegiance to the Lord of hosts, people who are in covenant with the Lord of hosts, with a true living God, these are the people that the Lord is sending to the Egyptians. And it says one of these cities where God's people will dwell will be called the city of destruction. Now scholars see this as a play of, on words. And in the Hebrew, the city of destruction sounds very similar to the city of the sun. And the city was named after Egypt's primary god, uh, primary deity, Ra which was the sun god. And, and you may know Pharaoh himself was thought of, was seen as the incarnation of this sun god, Ra. So what the pun is, is that the city that's dedicated to a false god, dedicated to a created object, the sun, that it will face destruction because of this blasphemy, because of this idolatry. You see, all people, not just Christians, not just Old Testament people of Israel and Judah, 
all people owe worship, all people owe obedience to the living God. And it's because of the fact that we are created by him, by the fact that he sustains us every single moment. We are obligated, obligated to praise him, obligated to show him obedience. And this city that is dedicated to something lesser, it will be destroyed. Hence, it's called the city of destruction. But even this city, even this blasphemous, rebellious city, destined for destruction, even this city is not without a witness to the truth. God's people will even inhabit this place. Even this wicked place, the truth can be found and the lost can be saved. And here's the application for us today. If you are a believer, God has put you in a specific place, a specific context. It could be in your family. It could be in your school. It could be in your job, in your neighborhood. If, you're, if you celebrate a hobby with unbelievers, God has placed you there because you know him. God has placed you there to be a testimony to the truth, a testimony to the gospel. And some people, God puts in very dark places, places where there are very few other believers, places where brothers and sisters are at risk, at risk of death, of even owning something, of being caught with the scripture, or what we are doing right now, worshiping. This could be cause to death for some of these people in these dark places. And there are believers in, in totalitarian countries like China and North Korea and, and other places. And they are the light in the darkness. They are the testimony. There are believers in secular places like post-Christian Europe and post-Christian America, providing light to atheists, uh, providing light to those who mock and despise them as, as being backward and unenlightened and, and, having, and, and being immoral. There are true believers in apostate churches, pointing to the truth that the leaders of these churches have long ago abandoned. And my friends, we have a message. We have a message that the world needs to hear. It's really the only message. It's the only message of the escape, how we can escape God's, uh, God's judge, judgment. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, see the world looks at all these, these things or problems. They look at climate change. They, they, look, at, uh, they look at racism. They, they look at uh, economic inequality. They, they look at all of these problems in the world. But the biggest problem is our problem with God. And there is only one solution. It is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And it has been entrusted to us. It has been trusted to Christ's church to proclaim to the world. Now, to those who are, are blinded by this, by the world and by Satan, this seems extremely arrogant, doesn't it? They say, how dare you? How dare you say that you alone have the truth? How could you be so arrogant to claim that you have the truth? But Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you, speaking to Christians, you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. It cannot be hidden. People do not light a light and put it under a, a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to the entire house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So my friends, don't waste your testimony. Don't waste where God has placed you. Be a witness. Be a witness to the truth. Be a witness to the gospel. Be a witness to the revelation that has been given to you through scripture. We have such an amazing privilege. So what does this witness look like? Well, this witness is first and foremost seen in our character. It's seen in our character. We are different from those who are not regenerated. We are different from those who do not know the Lord. 
Our motivations are different. We seek to glorify God. We seek to glorify God in everything we do, in everything we say. We love our neighbors. We love even our enemies as ourselves. And it's not with a superficial love. It's not the superficial love of the world, but it is with the true love of Christ. See, the world, for the world, love is being nice. Right? The, the, the world's love does not seek what's the best of the other person, the best as defined by God. No, the world's love is, is selfish love. It wants everyone to like me, so it never tells the hard truths. This is not God's love. This is actually ultimately hate, hatred. But we are to love with the love that is in alignment with God's truth. God's truth found in his scripture. And it is a costly love. It is a sacrificial love. It's a love that doesn't seek to, to comfort the person in themselves, comfort the person in their sin, but it's a love that points beyond themselves. It points to where true comfort can be found, and that is in Christ alone. It points to Christ. It points to the forgiveness of his gospel. That is true love. And our witness is first and foremost our character, which is, which is seen in our actions, which is seen in our ethics, and that, that, that flow out of a Christ-like character. And character is the primary part of our witness, but it is not the entire witness. And sadly, far too many Christians stop right here at, at showing a godly character. But stopping with a, with a Christ-like character, now it, it will be attractive to unbelievers, but it does them no good. Because what they do is they are ultimately attracted to us, not to Christ. And this actually is selfish when we do this. Because what we do is we want people to like us. And, we, and, and they like our Christ-like character, and they say, wow, I want to be like you. You're, you're a good person. I want to be like that. And we don't want to take this next step, because this next step will jeopardize the respect and admiration that our Christ-like character has given us in the eyes of unbelievers. And the next step of our witness involves content. We must communicate the content of the gospel. Now, communicating the content apart from from a Christ-like character, that's wrong as well because that, that will be rejected. That will be rightly seen as hypocrisy. If we're not living like we're professing, we're professing Christ, we will be dismissed. We will, actually, we will actually bring dishonor in Christ. So we're not to do that. But showing a Christ-like character apart from communicating the content of the gospel, this will simply be a mystery. They won't understand it. And actually even worse, they'll interpret your Christ-like character according to their own works-based worldview which means they will admire you because they think you've got that way because of some way you acted, something you did by your own efforts and something that they can emulate. And we must make it clear that our Christian character is not the result of our own efforts. We could not do this. See, the world thinks it's something that we can do, and the world admires it because they think they can do that. But rather, it is due to the, the transforming power of the gospel. We've got to make this clear. We need to make it clear that it's all of God and not of us. And this is not what the world wants to hear, not at all. See, they admire the Christ-like character because they think that by their own efforts, they too can do it. And they're working that way. <clears throat> but the gospel, the gospel is despairing of our own efforts. The gospel is turning away from ourselves and trusting into God. The gospel is admitting that I can't on my own do it. It is a despairing of my own ability and receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And this is what the world does not want to hear. But this, my friends, is the only message of hope. And this is what we are called to proclaim. And there will be so much temptation for us not to take that final step. Because we want people to like us. If we show Christ-like character, they'll like us. If we proclaim the gospel, they will not like us.
And while we are to display Christ-like character and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's very important that we realize that our job is not to change people. We can't do it. It's not to convert people. It's not to constantly be proclaiming the message to hard hearts that are not interested in the truth and only seeking to mock the truth, only seeking to destroy the truth. Jesus warns us not to cast our pearls before swine. Our pearls are the truth of the gospel that he has given to us. Rather, what our job is is to, to patiently wait for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to bring the crisis, to bring the judgment, the judgment that makes people tremble. That, that, that is designed to get their attention, that makes people realize that they can't save themselves, that they are completely undone, and they need to look beyond themselves. And when God gets their attention, when the unbeliever is brought to the end of his himself, that's when we come in. Our job is to show them the answer that they're searching for. Our job is to declare to them the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. The truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we are to declare that there is no other name, no other name other than the name of Jesus by which men must be saved. And we must be ever watching, ever reading the situation, sensitive always to the work of the Holy Spirit. And what, what it looks like will, will differ. It will, it, will, it, will, it will differ, but we always point them to Christ. And it's essential. It's essential for us to, to be in prayer. It's essential for us to be listening to the Holy Spirit. And it will always involve a, a genuine love, a genuine service flowing out of this Christ-like character and an appropriate sharing of the content of the gospel. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of how this looks. <clears throat> Remember many years ago, I had a, come into work and I have a co-worker who is in, in in, in crisis, I, I go into his office and he, he's shaking and he's having he's having the hardest time and, and and basically what he's experiencing is the effects of detox of alcohol withdrawal. The man was an alcoholic and he had run out of money and he run out of alcohol to, to buy and he was in, in bad shape. And I had taken him with a coworker. We took him to the hospital. We drove him to the hospital. Got him medical attention. Brought him to to uh, rehab. Actually, Lynn and I went and drove him to, and visited him in le- rehab. We prayed with him. I shared the gospel with him. I gave him a Bible. And a few months later, he moved away. He was actually fired from his job. And I'd lost touch with him for a couple of years. <clears throat> Several years later, out of the blue, I get an email from this man. And he tells me that he was in jail. He was arrested for a, for a DUI, hit rock bottom. He's actually contemplating su- suicide. And while he's in jail, the words that I had spoke to him years before came to his mind. He cried out to Jesus, and he was regenerated. I had this opportunity again on April 16th, 2007. Some of you know that, that, that date. That was the date that a gunman came to Virginia Tech and killed 32 people on our campus. I was on campus during lockdown. We were afraid. We were scared. We were praying. People were looking for answers. They were looking for hope. And I know people, because of that tragedy, who've come to Christ. Even here at Northgate, <clears throat> January of 2017, we were only here for six months. We have uh, tornadoes hit here. And then later on, when Hurricane Michael hit here, and we had all these opportunities to provide financial assistance, physical assistance. I remember sharing the gospel and praying with countless neighbors. Those were opportunities that we had. We had opportunities during COVID lockdowns when people are, are frightened, they're looking for hope. We can share the gospel. I remember multiple hospital visits. I remember one particular 
uh, Marilyn Clifton, who used to attend here, her brother, who was living here. And he was in the hospital. He was on a, a ventilator and, and not looking good. And, and, and uh, Marilyn asked me to go and visit him. And I remember coming into his hospital room, and, and he was really agitated and upset. And I, I, I prayed with him. I prayed for God's comfort, God's peace. I gently shared the gospel, read some scripture to him. And it, after that, when I left him, he was at peace. He was, he was calm. He, he was able to sleep. And then he passed away uh, the, the following day. Now, I don't know if he's in glory or not, but uh, I think there's hope that he may be in glory. God put him to a point of crisis. I remember the time Jack and I went to visit uh, Wayne's brother's uh, uh, Daniel, his father. The day that his father passed away, we went and visited him that morning. We, we shared the gospel. We prayed with, with this man and, and shared the gospel with, with, uh, with Daniel's uh, sis, uh, half-sister and stepmother. And uh, he passed away later that day. We don't know, but th- these people were brought to a, to a, to a, a situation. They, a, uh, they were brought to a, 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 a moment of crisis. And in all these situations, God brings them to this point of crisis. And, and, and they're beyond their own ability. They're looking for answers. They're looking for hope. And they desperately needed information that they didn't have. But God brings his people to them to provide that information, that truth that they need. And my friends, we have this information. We have the only hope. We have the only message of life. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we must be always listening to the Holy Spirit. We're always ready to, to boldly proclaim this message wherever the Spirit is working. Now, conversely, I remember when I was in seminary and I was doing a shift in the Charlotte Hospital observing the, the chaplains. And we visited several people there. I remember people were in a car accident, a person who lost their spouse in a car accident, another person who, was, who had horrible injuries from an accident, another person who was about to undergo <clears throat> some very dangerous surgery the next day. And all these people were looking for hope. I can see it in their eyes. They were looking for hope. And they looked at the chaplains, and the chaplains are silent. See, the chaplains, their, their hands were tied. They were not allowed to... To, to basically evangelize. All they could do was reflect back the faith that these people had. Problem is they didn't have any faith. They were looking for hope. And these chaplains are silent. They gave no new information. They just prayed a, a generic, vague, general plan, prayer that had no hope, that had no power. Well, we see explicit reason. We see the explicit reason the Lord puts people in, the, uh, his people in the proximity of the lost. And we see this in Verses 19 and 20. It says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. See, the Lord is worshipped, and this worship will be a sign. This worship will be a witness that the Lord is in the land of Egypt. The worship and the presence of true believers is a testimony, a testimony to unbelievers, even without them saying a word, just them being believers and acting like believers and worshiping like believers. And God uses this testimony as the means that he does of drawing unbelievers to himself. And we see the result of this process in the rest of verse 20. It says the fear and trembling caused the unbelievers to despair of any security in and of themselves, and cause them to, to, to desperately seek salvation somewhere. And the witness of the true believers in their midst gives them the information that they need. It gives them the content of the gospel. And in the next part of verse 20, we see the results of this process. It says, when they, that is the 
unbelieving Egyptians cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he, the living God, will send them a savior and a defender and a deliverer. See, the punishment and the, and the pain they experience, truly just, appropriate pain and punishment because of their rebellion, their rebellion against God, this was intended not for their harm, but actually intended for their good. It was intended to get their attention. And then God put these believers near them to point them to himself, to give them the, the content of the gospel. And all this was, was intended to make them cry out to God. And once they cry out to God, he responds. He sends them a Savior. He sends them the Savior. He sends them the Lord Jesus Christ to be the defender, to deliver them. And my friends, that's when the real fun begins. Look at verse 21. It says, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, worship with sacrifice and offerings. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Do you see the, the magnitude of what this verse is saying? It's saying that the Egyptians, these were God's enemies, the enemies and, and oppressors of God's people, they will know the Lord. He will be their God, and they, the Egyptians, will be his people. In verse 22, we see the summary of this process the Lord used. It said, the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. See, the Lord struck Egypt not to harm them, but to heal them. The punishment and the judgment was, was meant to get them to return to the Lord. And then it gets even more amazing. Look at verses 23 to 25. It says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day it will be the third of, with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. And the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And you see what this is saying. It's saying that these two superpowers, these people who are, who are causing so much evil, so much idolatrous, blaspheming God, persecuting his people, these nations will be converted. And not only do they have peace with God, now they have peace with each other. The enmity between them is gone. They have true unity in Christ. They enjoy a, a beautiful fellowship with the Lord and with each other and with all of God's people. My friends, this is God's plan. This is his amazing, magnificent, glorious plan of redemption. God uses crisis. God uses judgment. God uses us to bring the lost into his kingdom. And as I say in every sermon, if there are any here, any on the live stream, anyone hearing my voice who is not yet in his kingdom, now is the time to enter. See, God has used all the events of your life, the pains, the trials, the difficulties, even the joys, to, to get you to the point where you will despair of trusting in yourself and trusting your own abilities, and you will turn to Christ, and you will trust in him. You will call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. But for those of us who are new creations in Christ, those of us who have been transformed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, my friends, we have a mission. We have a glorious mission. And that mission is to share the gift that has been given to us. We are to display Christ to the world. We are to display Christ to the world through a transformed and Christ-like character. And we are to proclaim the only life-giving message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, there is no higher calling. And this is a calling that we will be celebrating for all eternity with the souls that have heard that the Lord has used our witness to bring into glory. There is no greater calling. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. 
We thank you for this privilege that you have given to us to be your messengers, the messengers of the gospel. And Father, I do pray if there are any here, any who hear my voice, who are not yet new creations, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will work in them now and change them. Use the content of the gospel that has been proclaimed to give them new life. But for those of us who know you, who've been walking with you, Father, give us a renewed commitment to be your witnesses wherever you place us. Not to grumble where we are, but to look at that as an opportunity to proclaim you. And Lord, give us eyes to see the working of your Holy Spirit and know what to say, what not to say, when to say it, to display you and that you will be glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.